Chapter Seven of the Apostle of Alaska: The Story of William Duncan of Metlakatla by John W. Arctander. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Phil Schempf. At the Fort, the Hudson's Bay Company's fort at Port Simpson was built in 1834 near the beach of a sheltered bay east of Dixon's entrance, not far from the boundary line of what was then Russian Alaska but which in eighteen sixty seven was to become american alaska the illustration on an adjoining page is from a photograph taken by a metlakatla native benjamin a haldane of an oil painting by gordon lockerby painted from watercolor sketches taken of the fort and its surroundings in eighteen sixty three and it in mr duncan's opinion gives a fairly good idea of the fort its location and surroundings as they looked when he on the morning after his arrival had an opportunity to first observe them the walls of the fort consisted of palisades thirty-two feet high built of trunks of trees over two feet in diameter driven into the ground and solidly riveted together the double gate was iron-bound and bolted and in it was a smaller gate similarly protected at which a sentinel or doorkeeper was stationed night and day and through which under the rules of the company not more than two indians at any one time were admitted so great was the fear of the inmates of the fort of the savagery of the natives at the four corners of the palisades which enclosed a space two hundred and forty feet square were built bastions two of which were provided with cannon able to sweep the surrounding country in all directions inside of the palisades about four feet below the top of the wall was a gallery running all around the fort so as to enable an armed guard to march back and forth and command a free view of the surrounding country on all sides of the structure night and day within the fort were located the company's store and its immense warehouse where thousands of valuable furs obtained by barter from the indians at ridiculously low prices were kept the captain's residence where the mess room for the officers was located a smaller building for the second officer and visitors where mr duncan soon after his arrival was installed in two small rooms there were also a carpenter shop a blacksmith's shop and a large building containing five rooms for the garrison of the fort which besides the three officers consisted of twenty workmen mostly french canadians these men were paid the mummificent salary of twenty-five cents per day and rations they were all married to or at least living with indian women and four of the families were stowed away in one room each family living in one corner and doing its cooking at the common fireplace in the centre of the room the walls of the fort have now and for many years past been raised and the only remnants of the old fort now standing are the captain's residence and the company's storehouse the latter has now been converted into the new company store and the front of the building modernized but the side wall of the storehouse still remains in the identical condition in which it was when mr duncan first saw it when the fort was first built there was no indian village close by the tsimshean indians or at least the tribes which later took up their abode around the fort were then located at metlakatla some seventeen miles southeast from the fort the word tsimshean means in the skeena by which it is meant to express the people living along or on the banks of the skeena river and this name correctly records an historical fact for these tribes many generations ago had lived at different points along the banks of the skeena river 
the name of each tribe as hereafter detailed gives to those acquainted with the topography of the country and the language the exact original location of all of them when the fort had been located at port simpson the indian tribes who had lived at metlakahtla were induced to take down their houses and rebuild them in the immediate vicinity of the fort and when duncan arrived there were located around the fort nine tribes with a population of twenty three hundred living in one hundred and forty houses to the left of the fort is shown the village of kilutsas the people living inside to the right is a portion of the village of the kishpokalots the people of the land of the elderberries the high pole in front of the last house to the right is the totem pole of legaic the principal chief of this tribe and in fact the head chief of the tsimtsians immediately beyond the confines of this village was situated a large peninsula at high tide an island on the shores of which were located the other villages one following in order after the other all around the island the kitnakangeeks the people who live where there are lots of mosquitoes the kittendoas the people of the land of the poles the kitsaklaws the people of the canyon the kitlans the people of the island the kitnatowicks the people of the rapids literally where the water runs swiftly the kitsish the people of the land of the hair seal traps and the kitwilgiants the people of the last place down besides these there were five tribes of tsimtsians living up the nass river some forty-five miles north of the fort and three tribes had settled on the coast farther south the only one of these tribes which will prove of any interest to us as this story proceeds is the tribe of the kithrontlas the people of the salt water which live along brown's passage away out in the ocean the houses of the indians were all one-story affairs built on poles or piles on the beach fifteen or twenty feet above high tide one house almost contiguous to the next and none of them provided with windows most of them were however of quite liberal dimensions some of the chief's houses being fifty or fifty-five by sixty-five feet the framework consisted of heavy logs posts and beams two or three feet in diameter upon the large beams rested the rafters of the roof which came to a peak part of these rafters for a distance of five or six feet extending out over the beams at the end of them was fastened a plank against which the walls made of split cedar planks rested the roof was made of big slabs of bark which were held in position by stones placed upon them there was only one room in each house around the walls ran an elevated platform used for storing away edibles and treasure chests as well as for sleeping purposes in the centre was a large deep oblong space sometimes dug down into the earth here was the huge fireplace with its blazing logs and directly above it an opening in the roof to allow the smoke to escape and to furnish whatever ventilation was needed it goes without saying that in a cold winter there was plenty of it in fact i have been told that a person sitting close up to the fireplace was fairly toasted on one side while the other was white with frost in order to furnish a windbreak planks were placed on the roof in proximity to this hole and in such a way that they could be moved to correspond with the direction of the wind it was in this central portion of the house that the family spent the day when not engaged outside often such a house would be the home of from thirty to forty people 
each one of the tribes of these savages had its own chiefs usually four or five one of whom was more prominent than the others these chiefs came from the scovalis or royal blood no one could be a chief unless he on his mother's side descended from the scovalis of the tribe in the case of the total extinction of the scovalis family the wise men of the tribe would elect one of their number to be the founder of another dynasty then there were the ligaquettes forming the aristocracy of the tribe and from whom the headmen or counsellors of the chiefs usually from ten to twelve came these men obtained their official rank and standing by the liberal giving away of property rather than by reason of their birth then we have the wahimes or the common people in addition to these castes or classes there was also to be found in each tribe a number of slaves klingungets either prisoners of war or obtained by barter and trade from other tribes the male slaves ha were doing the hunting and fishing and all other hard work for the chiefs and the aristocracy and the females wotek were performing all menial work required around the camp these slaves were treated very cruelly and often killed at the bidding of their masters it has been stated that legaic was the head chief of the tsimsheans at fort simpson this does not indicate that he ruled over any other tribe than his own each tribe had absolute control of its own village but when the head men of the different tribes for any purpose met together in common council or attended a great feast legaic who by reason of his having given away more property than any other chief ranked above the others took the most prominent seat and greater attention was paid to his words only to this extent did his head chiefship go before mr duncan had been at the fort a week it was this chief who a little after high noon enraged at what he considered a lack of recognition of his rank on the part of a couple of chiefs of one of the other tribes in order to show the indians his power and daring shot an unarmed indian a visiting haida just as he was about to enter the gate of the fort and left him there wounded and dying not even satisfied with this wanton deed of cruelty he ordered two of his slaves to take their guns and go finish the fellow so thoroughly impregnated with fear of the savagery of the tribes were the inmates of the fort that not one of the garrison dared to go outside to aid or rescue the wounded man the officers of the fort without interfering or protesting at all from the gallery witnessed the killing of the wounded man by legaic slaves looking more like incarnate devils than human beings they crawled over the woodpiles in front of the fort and in cold blood discharged their shotguns into the body of the bleeding and dying victim this scene of bloodthirstiness and savage cruelty was mr duncan's introduction to his future wards enough surely it was to discourage the bravest heart but to him it only gave a stronger determination to bring to these people the message of the gospel of peace and mercy this one thing i do was still his motto his practical mind had already told him that the only way to get to the heart of these savages was to bring them the gospel message in their own tongue and that the first step for him to take was to learn this barbaric language without a grammar without a dictionary yea even without an alphabet in as short a time as possible he ascertained that no one at the fort understood the language even the captain who had married a native woman got along with the trading jargon but the chinook jargon could not be used for preaching the gospel that was certain 
within a couple of days of his arrival mr duncan on the advice of the captain and with his assistance secured for his teacher of the language a young ligaquette from legaic's tribe one claw who occasionally came into the fort and who had impressed every one with his apparent greater intellectuality than the common ordinary indian but claw understood no english and duncan hardly knew a word of tsimshean both could however make use of the chinook jargon and when that failed they had to resort to the sign language mr duncan had from his dictionary made a list of fifteen hundred of the most common and useful words in the english language now his first task was to get the meaning of these words in tsimshean and to write them down phonetically as they were pronounced by claw the difficulty was not so great while the objects of the words were at hand or within reach and could be pointed out as a house a man a nose an eye a chair a table etc but when it came to words beyond that pale the ingenuity of mr duncan was frequently taxed to the utmost in the attempt to make himself understood when i in the summer of nineteen o eight interviewed old claw who is still living at port simpson i was told by him yes mr duncan teach me english and me teach him tsimshean this mutual teaching perhaps helped matters some as mr duncan after a while could express himself in english at least in the preparatory efforts to explain the expression he was after especially must the limited advance of his teacher into the mysteries of the english language have been of some assistance to him when he sought to learn the tsimshean expressions for some twelve hundred short sentences which he had formed in english but after all the task was appalling he says himself that many a time did he spend half a day in obtaining the proper words for a single idea lacking as the tsimshean language naturally is in many expressions greatly valuable in preaching the gospel it has for instance no word for spiritual or carnal nor anything that expresses either of these ideas there are in other respects a superabundance of expressions almost inexplicable to us they have for instance not less than five different words for each numeral depending on whether one speaks of flat objects like blankets or books or of round objects like dollars or of men and women or of canoes or of long objects like guns trees nails etc two for instance in tsimshean when applied to blankets is topra when applied to dollars kupa to men tupahdul to canoes kalbilk and to guns kuapskan adjectives are entirely different words when applied to the singular and to the plural nouns also in other respects is the language intensely complicated words of ten and twelve syllables are not uncommon one page in english could not be properly translated into tsimshean in much less than two here is an example the expression may you be forever happy is one word in tsimshean klatum vila lua mam ka not very remarkable for its compactness and brevity i am sure one illustration of the tireless efforts of mr duncan to acquire the language must here be given he wanted to get the expression in tsimshean for the word try he first took a slate and wrote in big letters kla and showed him the writing then he rubbed out what he had written handed the slate pencil to claw and pointed to the slate claw who could not write shook his head try try with many gestures 
more shaking of the head then he took claw's hand and guided it so that he with duncan's help wrote claw then pointing to the word written pronouncing it and to the blank space below and handing him the pencil he again repeated try try a light of understanding now came into claw's eyes as he took hold of the pencil he exclaimed tumpaldo tumpaldo ah said duncan who wanted to be sure that he got it right running over to the fireplace he grabbed hold of a heavy log lying there pretended to attempt to lift it and being unable to do so crying all the time while looking anxiously at claw tumpaldo tumpaldo ah ah was the answer ah is tsimshian for yes ein for no he had found it tumpaldo means i will try just as amo in latin means i love the first person singular is expressed by the terminal o while mr duncan is working day and night and burning the midnight oil in efforts to acquire the language we will devote a few chapters to learning something about the tsimshian indians their manners customs and religion for they had a religion before duncan came among them primitive and crude it is true but nevertheless containing in its legendary lore thoughts which should make it much easier for them to embrace the wonderful truths which he had come to teach them End of chapter 7